You are listening to Songezo Mabete on SAFM. Yeah, we are back. I suppose everybody has heard the question I'd asked of Ndademo Hali, who has previously sat on this very chair doing the hashtag Tuesday Takeover. Ndademo Hali, welcome back on the platform. It's nice to hear your voice again and especially interested in hearing your thoughts on what clearly so far is dividing the country, just about on color lines, unfortunately. So first of all, as Busa, we support it. We support it because it's the law. We support it because it's consistent with our constitution. We support it because 29 years into democracy, all of us collectively have not succeeded in eradicating the legacy of apartheid. First example, mm. the definition of employment equity, like all transformative instruments, is simply a planned and positive process and strategy that is aimed at transforming the socio-economic environment that has excluded individuals from previously disadvantaged groups. In order for these individuals to gain access to opportunities, including developmental opportunities based on their suitability. It's consistent with the constitution because if you look not at all 198 chapters in the main body of the constitution, but just the preamble, the one page, it starts by saying, we the people, my words, not the politicians. It says, recognizing the past injustice. And in the main body of this one page, it both implores and mandates you and I, BUSA and Solidarity, and Afri Forum to correct and fix these past injustices. And we say our constitution is the best in the world, primarily because it rests on these three pillars. One is a constitutional democracy. Two is social justice, which talks directly to employment equity, transformation, broad-based black economic empowerment. And then last, it talks about fundamental human rights. Yes, the right, the freedom of speech, freedom of association, but most importantly, freedom from hunger. It can be that 29 years into democracy, that the positions of leadership, especially in business, C-suite I'm talking about, is still occupied predominantly by white males. And yet we say all of us are in rainbow nation. We want to do our bit to make sure that as leaders, we improve the quality of lives, especially of those um, that are less fortunate than ourselves. Why is it that I end? Does business need government to force it to do the right thing? Why is it that business is waiting for government for it to transform? Why is business waiting for government to implement gender equality and pay parity? Why is business waiting for government to force it to pay small and medium enterprises in 30 days? That's all Dademo Hali, thank you so much for your preliminary thoughts. I suppose the questions will be the same to you, Matthew Parks, Gosatu's parliamentary coordinator. Your views on the signing of this bill and if you have... Okay, of course, do you agree, do you disagree, and whatever your thoughts are based on your agreement or disagreement on that. Good evening. Thanks for having us. Uh, so evening to, to Bonong and Mr. Hammond. Um, so look, as Kosato, we welcome it, and I think we welcome any effort which will help to address our legacies of racism of being divided along racial lines. 
Um, we welcome any measure which is going to help make sure our workplace would reflect the demographic diversity of South Africa. We think this amendment act is going to further take us along that journey. We know legislation will never be perfect, but it's about finding what is the right compromise, what is the right balance. And I think we welcome it because it brings some useful further enhancement to the existing legislation. It's not a brand new law, but it's uplifting, modernizing some of the existing laws. Um, so one is that it makes it a bit easier for employers to report on their employment equity targets to the end of the annual reports. Um, also that if a company wants to do business with the state, they want to get attended, and they have to ensure that they are compliant with the Minimum Wage Act. That's going to be useful to boost in minimum wage compliance and also to ensure that they're in compliance with the Employment Equity Act. Because I don't think it's right to have companies giving tenders from the state if they're not in compliance with the laws of the country. They're not supporting fair labor practices. It also modernizes the definition of disability because for some reason, the existing definition of disabilities didn't include intellectual or sensory disabilities. So, for example, persons who are blind wouldn't have been covered. And that's obviously a fundamental mistake. I think there's another critical thing which it says that um, the Minister of Labor, if he sees that as a certain sector of the economy, perhaps the banking industry, for example, um, is falling behind on primary equity targets, that then the targets can be a little bit more specified for that sector or that profession, as opposed to one size fits all. Another critical one is that <clears throat> uh, Mr. Hammond is here, so he would also obviously in a lot of the details. There was previously a problem with a one-size-fits-all approach to employment equity, that if you had a national department of correctional services, for example, mm-hmm. it had to apply only the national demographics. It wouldn't take into account the different demographics of the Western Cape or the Northern Cape as compared to Limpopo. Now, here you have a situation where the law has been amended to say that employers can take into account, they should take into account, the demographics of the region where they're located because you know that our population diversity is quite different from province to province, you know? Um, in KwaZulu-Natal, it makes sense to have a target, for example, of 10% Indians because the population is 10% Indian. But that wouldn't make sense, for example, in the Northern Cape, which is you know 50% coloured, 40% African, 10% white. You know, so it's a useful tool. Um, so I think for us, it's a it's a positive step forward. It's not going to address all the issues, but I think for us, we have to continue to go along this journey. Um, not that we want to kind of, you know, count heads, but I think we need to move in a direction where it says our workplaces should reflect the diversity of South Africa. So from our side, we supported and we had lots of engagements on it at NEDLEC. And I think also what was positive for us is that there was consensus between government, business and labor on it. Um, so I think for us, what's critical now is to make sure that government empowers labor inspectors to help enforce it. That, you know, organized business, like um, Bonang and his colleagues, also make sure that the different employer organizations, the workplace are aware of it and abide by it. And of course, our trade unions, we also need to make sure that our shop stewards, our organizers, our workers are also aware of it and how can they help ensure it's compliant at a workplace level. Very well. I propose to take a very short ad break because I have to before we get the perspectives of the head of research at Solidarity, Mr. Connie Malda, after the break. You are listening to Songhezomapete on the Station of the Year. Mr. Connie Mulder, I suppose you've heard the perspectives offered by Ndate Mohale as well as Matthew Parks representing Busa and Gosati specifically on the same question. What are your thoughts on the signing by the president on the employment equity bill? Does Solidarity sponsor this signature or not? And to the extent that it does or doesn't, why? Um, yes. Okay. Good evening to, to your listeners. Good evening to the other panelists. I, I think it's it's uh, made clear for us at Solidarity that we cannot support 
um, this bill. It's, it's a bill that is uh, draconian in its ambition and schizophrenic in its implementation. So, so what do we mean? Um, is uh, in South Africa we've we've learned some hard lessons regarding giving a lot of central power to the government. And what this bill does through Section 15 specifically is it gives the minister a truly scary amount of power to intervene in every single private company in this country that has more than 50 employees. So if you have 51 employees, uh, suddenly the minister can intervene and tell you what numerical targets your workforce should look like at what level. Now, it's from, from our perspective, this is social engineering. It's social engineering to a, an extent that, that is almost dystopian, and it's something that worries us immensely. Um, once you have uh, government being that involved in the private economy, uh, this cannot lead to economic growth. We've never seen a government being involved in, econo- in the economy to this extent that uh, does not lead to overburdening companies with regulation. And in a country with our level of unemployment, we need to make doing business easier, not worse. That's the draconic part is you've got a bill that truly gives the minister almost unfettered power to not take into account any nuance, uh, to just plain simply set a numerical target at a certain sector, at a certain level, in a certain um, certain area, if he wants to. Uh, this this creates massive problems. The second part, which is schizophrenic in its implementation, is in South Africa for a, for a very good reason. Uh, when we decided how are we going to repair the, the damage of the past, we expressly stated that we're going to move away with employment equity from anything representing an absolute quota. Now, this is for a very good reason, is we do not want absolute quotas on uh, barriers to entry, on, on an absolute barrier to entry into the labor market based on race, based on gender, based on disability at any point. Um, and, and I think Solidarity wholeheartedly supports this. We've litigated on this several times. But then with Section 15, uh, suddenly basically what the law says is you cannot have an absolute barrier, barrier except if the minister decides that, that he wants one. Um, because now he can set a numerical target with uh, the, 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 uh, the, the no incentives to match it, only a stick, no carrot, only stick on the side with penalties if you do not comply on the other hand, which from our perspective and from our legal perspective constitutes an absolute barrier. Now, we've got a long, uh, long history of litigating on absolute quotas. We litigated for the Department of um, Correction Services in the Western Cape where they set an absolute barrier on uh, national demographics. We recently litigated, or AFRIFA litigated against the, uh, the netball team that, I don't know if you remember that absurdity, where a netball team was barred from participating in the final because the, they did not have the right amount of white players on the field for one half. And the, the problem was the netball team was extremely successful, but they only had black players on the field. And what astounds us is that government would look at the absurdity of that situation, having a netball team competing and winning, and then barring them from participating in the final because their the demographics didn't look right, and then trying to apply that to the economy, um, which, which just does not make sense. And from our, our legal team is hard at work uh, preparing legal documents. Uh, we're going to, we don't think this, this bill in its current format will pass constitutional muster. Um, we're going to access, uh, well, uh, use our rights to access the courts. And um, from there, we need to get clarity on, is this the way that we want the country to go? We were once again moving into a direction where we've got absolute targets with uh, massive amounts of penalties if you do not comply um, on the whole private sector. Uh, we don't think this is the country that we want. We don't think this is the country that we want to leave for our children. Mm. And that's why we're taking action to, to say this is not the way we're going to, to go, well, go forward and create jobs and get people out of poverty. Very well. No, thanks, Connie. Um...
so this is essentially now the argument that you are raising. You disagree with Musa, you disagree with Kosatu, you disagree with the position that government is taking. <coughs> now, can I just ask questions and to the extent possible, just give me a yes or no so that I can actually frame the core points of divergence here, which hopefully then where the debate will lie. Are you at all in favor of an employment equity bill that looks to address the failures over the last 29 years in terms of a society that remains pretty much a mirror image more of pre-94 than it should post-94 a society along the demographic lines? Um, all right, so that is a very long question that cannot simply have a yes or no answer. In, in, in other so words, my question a- is, has employment equity to date been successful, yes or no? No, it has not been successful. Okay. What would you, in a line or two, suggest should be the way to address employment equity failures? Oh, we've, we've extensively um, commented on this, and it, it's quite simple. We need to stop focusing on the output side. Um, we have uh, tried our best to get government to fix our dysfunctional educational system. We're of the opinion that anyone in this country can do any job, but you need certain qualifications, you need certain experience, and we want to empower people, get the right qualifications. If you just fix the education system, you get tertiary education going in, you get vocational training going, you get the high school system functional again. Ultimately, due to the okay, so essentially the, country, the saying, labor market... No, no, sorry. You're saying the education system is the problem that can solve, if done right and properly, these issues. Two things. Specifically, you said nuances are not contemplated. I'm asking these questions with the hope that Ndate Mohale and Parks are taking note. What nuances are not contemplated that you are of the view should be contemplated by this bill? Okay, um, so we're, we're not alone here. We are in good company. Is The International Labour Organization actually uh, set up a mediation process between us and the government regarding the implementation of affirmative action with uh, their comment being there's merit in saying uh, government is doing it way too clumsily, um, focusing only on race, gender, and disability, and not taking anything into account like uh, income levels, uh, 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 more nuanced uh, geographic approach, um, even just the age freedom, and then uh, obviously having to take into account uh, you can ultimately only appoint an engineer if he's actually qualified as an engineer. So your demographics should not simply be the economically active population. It should be the economically active population of suitable, qualified candidates in your area. And then empowering people, um, uh, the, the, the example that the Human Rights Commission used in their report, in which they criticized government as well for implementing an unnuanced version of affirmative action, is saying that the current version would enable a rich uh, black female student whose parents are neurosurgeons and went to a private school and private university to get a position above a uh, poor brown or colored a male who fought his way out of the Cape Flats of studied on a bursary. And now due to the bean counting situation, we're only looking at gender, race, and disability. Um, we're, we're not accounting for that situation correctly. And that is why we're, we're trying our best to get government to move to a situation where we're much rather focusing on proper need, on income levels, um, enabling a, a legislation that actually empowers the poor, gets poor people into the labor market. Let me ask a follow-up question, I'm trying to be as brief as possible. Please work with me. You said there's no carrot, only stick. What carrot could there be if it was to be there? Um, well, I or what would a carrot look like? In this case, uh, well, we number one would be try to work together with business rather than 
uh, simply being having penalties. The second would be you can do a lot of tax incentives for training, for skilling up people, and making sure that we get adult education back online, getting uh, people 30 years and older to once again get into tertiary training. There's a lot of carrot that you can enable to increase the pool of qualified candidates, which automatically in a free market that where companies chase profit will lead to a demographic change that you want to see. Government, however, has lazily not done anything like that. They've now parked the problem in front of business and they're expecting uh, the business, uh, well, labor, uh, the business side of, uh, to sort out education training uh, by then trying to, to eat them over the Very stick. Very well. Over the head with the stick. Dademo Hale, you've listened to all of this, and I think I've tried to get some of the issues, certainly that were for me somewhat hanging or unclear, and I have indulged Mr. Mulder to truly delineate his position. And it's clear in this conversation that you and Matthew Pox are on the one end of this debate while Connie Mulder is on the other. You've heard him, of course. Do you have anything in direct response to what he has to say around the fact that government is putting essentially the cart before the horse? Government is masking its failures over a protracted period of time. And the fact that government is effectively race baiting or engineering along race lines. What have you to say in response to all of these conversations and comments by Connie Mulder? So first, of course, it is social engineering to reverse the effects of 370 years of colonialism, 98 years of separate development, 48 years of institutionalized apartheid. And we are not the only country in the world that has attempted to do that. Even Dubai is saying when you set up a business in Dubai, except in the free trade area, 51% of those businesses must be owned by the Emiratis. So are most African countries. It's unfortunate that solidarity is using black and colored to divide and rule like their forebears the National Party did. The act is very clear. In broad-based black economic empowerment and the definition in employment equity, it says it is all those that are excluded on the basis that they are not white. To Mr. Connie Melder, I will say, you know, we are taught that contrition is an ongoing thing. You have to continuously ask for forgiveness and be eternally grateful for the mercy show. The condition of truth is to let suffering speak. As a man, I can't claim to speak on behalf of women unless I'm saying as a beneficiary of patriarchy, my job is to bring down the proverbial concrete feeling that excludes women. I'm hoping that they will use their money better than they did when they challenged the Black Economic Empowerment Act in the North Houghton High Court, where the judgment, the court also agreed with the Department of Tourism that the economic impact of COVID-19 pandemic will result in the closure of black businesses and would undermine and set back transformation. The High Court found nothing racial or shameful in our inclusion of broad-based black economic empowerment in the criteria as the applicants sought to suggest. This was upheld 
because solidarity has money and it has the most peace. By the constitutional court dismissal of the joint AFRI forum and solidarity's application to appeal and set aside the use of VE as a consideration for financial relief to small businesses in the sector affected by COVID-19. So the Constitutional Court considered the application for leave to appeal and concluded that the application should be dismissed as it is not in the interest of justice to hear it at this stage. As there are insufficient grounds raised for a direct appeal to the court on an urgent basis. And I would say to Mr. Kony if you look at Section 9 of the South African Constitution, it guarantees equality before the law and freedom from discrimination to the people of South Africa. But you see, this equality right is the first right listed in the Bill of Rights. It prohibits both discrimination by government and by private persons. But here's what he needs to read. Section 9, Article 1, has a general limitation clause in Section 36 that says that right may be limited by a law of general application that is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on dignity, freedom, and equality. Section 1 says this does not preclude any law program or activity that has as its object the ameliorations of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups, including those that are disadvantaged because of race, nationality, ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. And when you say, no, but it will discriminate against colored people. In fact, our employment equity law says black is all those that are excluded on the basis that they are not white. And in black, it talks about colored Africans and Indians. So we are not going to allow you to divide colored people from African people, from Indian people, when all of us have borne the brunt of the 370 years of colonialism. That doesn't Matthew Parks, Busa is suggesting as Busa, I mean, sorry, Busa as well as Nedlek. I mean, you say that Nedlek has passed this, Busa is here. And yet Mr. Mulder talks about the fact that it puts obligations on businesses that are onerous. Is he referring to the businesses of South Africa or to a particular community of businesses? Because that is what he has said. In other words, the businesses to which he makes reference clearly is not or are not the businesses to which you at Nedlec, as a partner at Nedlec, refer to, or BUSA, Business Unity South Africa. What can you share in that re- in that respect? Yeah. So look, there's been a lot of fake news um, I've seen over the past few days around this act. You know, people are saying it's collapsing employment equity, it's collapsing the Others are saying it's making it more difficult for businesses. But if you look at the act itself, it actually makes it easier for businesses to report on them from equity reports. It streamlines it. Um, so there's no additional burden. This is an existing law. It's been around for some time. But I think we've tried to modernize it to make it more friendly, more easy for employers to comply with. But the reality is that, as Bonang is saying, we come from a country which is, has a very painful and divided past based upon racial lines. We still see it in our economy. Uh, if you look at the mining industry, most of the CEOs are white males. If you look at the banking sector, again, overwhelmingly white males. Go to the bottom tier of the, of the workplace, cleaners, etc., the African women. 
So if we think that's all right, that makes sense, 29 years in a democracy, then sure, we don't need to do anything. We can scrap it all. But I think most of us, and at least ourselves as Kosatu, who are members at the bottom, we think that it's time that our workplaces, and we have continuously have to strive towards, not easy, but to make sure our workplaces as much as possible reflect the diversity of the country. If we don't do, go down this route of transforming South Africa into a non-racial country where everybody has same opportunities, etc., and we can look at Zimbabwe to the north and see that this is what happens if you don't do this journey. We have to correct it. It's not just us who do, deal with it. The United States, Europe, many other countries have gone through this same painful journey. But I think for us, it's more dangerous not to, to see how do we cleanse ourselves of the sins of the past, how do we improve it. But there is a characteristic approach in the, in the act. If a company wants to do business with the state, and the state is the largest procurer in the economy, you know, has about a one trillion uh, land procurement bill, then you need to show that you're in compliance with the Employment Equity Act. It's not a very difficult thing to do. You need to show that you pay your workers at least at the minimum wage level or above. Again, it's not a difficult thing to do. So, so that's the carrot where you're trying to incentivize and reward good behavior. Because again, government funds are, are workers' taxes. So we should be using our taxes to reward good behavior, not to incentivize bad behavior. But I think also, <clears throat> look, laws can never be perfect. You're always going to struggle with some implementation. All laws have struggle. But you want to begin to change the culture. So that's the idea of the Employment Equity Act, is you change the culture to say, how do we make our workplaces reflect South Africa? Just like you have the other labor laws to try to also encourage good behavior at the workplace. Um, that's what it's about. Um, but I think for us also, there's not an unheard of thing. You know, as much as all of us, or all civil people, hate the National Party, hate the party regime. But the one thing the National Party did very effectively was to empower Afrikaner people through corrective action after they came to power in the second time in 1948. There's no difference. We're trying to say, how do you uplift people who are very poor, have been marginalized, as Bonang is saying, historically for many centuries? How do you correct that? And this is one journey to do it. Mm. But I'm a bit surprised because, so Solidarity, after they would have claimed victory for this, for this act, because Solidarity correctly took um, government to court on the correctional service issue in Paulsmore prison about five, six years ago because correctional service didn't take into account the demographics of the Western Cape, which is, you know, as you know, about 45, 50% colored, 30% African, etc. right? The, the law now says that the employee needs to take into account the national demographics of the national employer, for example, but at the local level, they should take into account local demographics. So the Western Cape demographics are very different um, than those of Limpopo, where minority is only 3%. So this provides a much more inclusive, much more reflective of our regional t- demographics, etc. And I think that's a correct approach, because you need to make sure this is an inclusive journey, that we don't leave people behind, no one should be feeling excluded, etc. Um, but we need to find what is the right balance all the time. So okay, that's the right step. No, I've got you. I have to take a break, hopefully the last... It's 2041. We have to take this break. My guests, Bonang Mohale, Connie Mulder, and Matthew Ponks, representing WUSA, Solidarity, and Gosato, respectively, are in debate with me as to how the Employment Equity Bill that has recently been signed by the President should land. Two are suggesting this is a good move by the government. One is suggesting this is a draconian move. And the question is, what do you at home think? 86 2032 Songhezo Mabebe on SAFM.
Hello everybody, we are back. This is SAFM with me, Songa Zomabeta. We are discussing the hashtag employment equity bill that has recently been signed into law now by the president, giving express powers to the minister. Specifically, the bill empowers the minister of employment and labor to set employment equity targets for economic sectors, as well as regions where transformation is lagging. The amendment bill also empowers the Minister of Employment to regulate compliance criteria to issue compliance certificates as per Section 53 of the Act. The upshot of this, Connie, is whatever has happened in the last 29 years, government is of this view. Certain sectors remain untransformed or certain people in such sectors remain vulnerable and specifically in relation to the matter of regions there there are certain regions albeit contributing to the economy they are not contributing in a manner in which they otherwise could be if you contemplate certain demographic factors whether it's women who are not sufficiently contemplated in the economy or persons with disabilities or persons who are black whatever the case might be so the distinction here is between the economic sectors that are a government priority looking at the state's potential against its output as well as regions certain regions for instance wouldn't necessarily attract the ministers in power to be invoked as the bill ultimately gives expression to because they are sufficiently moving in that right direction as to require particular intervention. And then there are certain areas or regions where they remain vulnerable, remain on the outskirts, if you like, of the mainstream, whatever you might interpret mainstream to be, and as such, public intervention, ministerial intervention in this instance, is necessary. Mr. Mohale makes reference to the fact that social engineering in itself is not an issue. It's using social engineering to have discriminatory effects, bad and negative discriminatory effects, as apartheid and everything before it was, that is the issue. So in other words, any form of redress would at some stage or the other require a form of social engineering. So the point that you are addressing about reverse apartheid or race baiting or race engineering, in his views anyway, is moot on that basis. What then do you say in relation to these comments or arguments that are put to you saying that if you're going to be raising social engineering as an issue, it isn't an issue precisely because this is an empowering provision laid out in the Constitution to address the injustices of the past, among other things? Um, All right. So uh, I think that social engineering, uh, at least we've got honesty that this is social engineering, uh, like the National Party did. This is what we're trying to implement. Um, And just because, (laughs) obviously, we're on the side saying, well, uh, once you start dictating what society should look like based on racial lines, um, that's a very dangerous road to go down, especially when the social engineering is uh, uh, accompanied by the minister having powers to limit, I don't know, yes, he can look at geography, but it's not necessary that he has to. Uh, the minister can set any target for any sector. May I he interrupt wants you, to. sorry? And, um, why are you interrupting me? Sorry. No, no, I, I just want to make this point clear. From a social engineering perspective, this is what yes, I sir. understood Mr. Mohale to have said when he, moved, when he used the word social engineering. Social engineering, to the extent that it addresses a social engineering outcome that was bad, that was discriminatory, is the one that is required to address that. In other words, absent a social engineering program, that social engineering which had had the dastardly impact is never going to change. Now, this form of social engineering, if you want to use that term, 
or redress, which is the word that is the currency, is directed at ensuring that whatever currently is at play, which is at variance with the state's demographic outlook, more resembles the state's demographic outlook and less resembles the apartheid social engineering. Yes, and I understand that uh, social engineering, I understood the, exactly what he meant. I was busy addressing that, saying that, and we're very close to the to the two wrongs uh, make a right uh, logical fallacy here. For the simple reason, uh, the minister can suddenly, if we're saying that the social engineering necessary is that the minister can set absolute barriers based on race, gender, and disability, we need to really start asking ourselves, is this the way to solve this problem? And so there is not of the opinion that there is no problem. Obviously, South Africa's labor market has massive problems, and we would like to address this. But we don't need to do, address it in the way that it was created. The way that we address these issues is by getting people jobs, getting everyone into the labor market. The demographics of South Africa is to such an extent that if we get education fixed, if we get young people in the labor market with hope in their eyes, getting them the qualification that actually gets them a job that enables them to buy a house, buy a car, have a family, have the white picket fence, if we can get that done, the demographics and the social transformation will take care of itself. And that is why we're of the opinion government is simply shifting the, shifting the blame here. Um, what worries us about this law is that it takes everything that didn't work. Um, we, we've seen companies simply going to malicious compliance when the stick gets applied. Um, now they're ex- making that worse, creating an administrative burden that in no way government can handle. Um, we're not going to see any real tangible benefits except for the small elite who has benefited from the initial uh, 29 years of, uh, of employment equity, where we've created a very small elite who's benefited extensively um, at the expense of every other Let's take a citizen. Call. Sorry, what? I'm, I'm suggesting we take a call. There's a caller from Cape Town in D. I've heard your response in response to the question of social engineering. D in Cape Town, your thoughts? Oh, hi. Yes, I have three points. One is I was a designer in a clothing factory, and, uh, and 800,000 colored people lost their jobs when it went to China. I remember the minister saying it doesn't matter because three people in China can eat for one person in South Africa. Number two, my nephew worked for Toyota um, in um, Durban. And um, he was given two African people to hire. He was a factory manager and one Indian guy. He, he chose the Indian guy because he had better qualifications and he was told, no, you're not allowed to employ him. That's just for the paperwork so it looks good. So he left the company and now he's overseas. Number three, I heard a program on FM a while back and um, companies actually hire too few people because of government interference. I know many companies that had such terrible paperwork, such terrible government interference, they're now employing nobody because they've all closed down. So the government doesn't create jobs, it actually gets rid of jobs with all its nonsense. And prevents people from hiring more people because... Hello? Okay, we've got you there, Dee. I'm going to let you take that call. Matthew, you've heard that comment. In other words, government intervention is more destructive than it is constructive. How is this intervention in the context of... Sorry, can we have one conversation, please? I don't know who it is who is engaging elsewhere. Okay. Sorry, Matthew, I beg your pardon for that. You've heard what Dee has had to say, and I think in part what Connie before had to say that. 
This is seen as, at least from Connie and Dee, as government intervention. What is wrong with government intervention when the economy on its own doesn't get it right? Yeah. Look, there's no society in the world, whether it's in the U.S. or it's in Europe or it's in Asia or South Africa, where government doesn't have to intervene to correct the wrongs, the failures or the omissions of the market. That's that's part of the course. Um, if we were to say government mustn't intervene, then it means that we're happy with the status quo. We're happy that cleaners will only be African women. We're happy that the CEOs of big mining companies will only be Afrikaner males or banks will be white males. So if we're happy with that, then it's fine. We don't need to transform anything. We can stick with what we are. Then we can take that same logic to say that there should be no government address around housing for the poor, around public transport for the poor, around investing in education in poor areas. I mean, it's going to be a very slippery slope. And again, if we think we're being alarmed to say we need to address the transformation issues, then let's just remind ourselves what happened in Zimbabwe when they failed at times to address the transformation issues. There's a ticking time bomb. We think the law is a fair balance. It's not draconian in saying we need to nudge people in the right direction. We're not saying anybody must be fired. And I would be very curious to see which company has actually been firing people on this basis. Um, but what we agree with, with colleagues 100% is that education is the fund along the actual solution. This is, this is really trying to nudge a workplace in the right direction. But Connie is right. The fundamental solution is to invest in people's education across the board and to grow the economy because you have an unemployment rate of 42%. That's what we need to resolve. But just because you focus on that doesn't mean you don't address other social ills. And the fact is that we still have the legacy of apartheid in society. If you come to Cape Town, Africans live in Kaidich and Kubernetes and Philippi in absolute poverty. Karaka will live in Mandenberg and Athlone, equally not as bad as poverty, but quite bad. White people live in Peru, live in Belleville, live in Constantia, etc. In a completely different world. So we have to begin to address this issue. We can't afford to sustain ourselves in two worlds in one country. I think also on the issue of businesses, companies exist because they want to sell the products. They don't exist because they want to hire people or they want to hire this person because of this kind of They exist because they want to sell the product, whether it's a restaurant selling food or a petrol station selling petrol. So they're going to exist because of that and because they're going to make profits. This doesn't interfere with that. It just simply says we need to nudge ourselves in this particular direction so we address society's long-term sustainability. And a company is not going to be sustainable if you don't address our fundamental sins in society where we took African color people and said, you are not human, we're going to treat you like slaves, etc. We'll be naive and reckless if we don't address the situation. And I think government is, is being fair to say let's try to address this in an cl- inclusive way, not in a reckless way. And I think for us, this is a better option because if we go to the extremes of, you know, what Zimbabwe did for, for, for a stage, or if we go to the extremes of denialism, that is going to be a surefire recipe for, for social chaos and, and, and strife. Let's take a voice note. Thanks so much, Matthew. Uh, let's take a voice note before we start wrapping things up. Hi, Songezo. It's Doomsy from Cape Town. Restorative justice involves taking away from someone for the benefit or for the in the interest of justice you take away from someone meaning that you deprive someone so if during apartheid blacks were being deprived it means that restorative justice would be would include depriving white people 
in the interest of black. Your thoughts on that, Connie? In other words, if I give you two apples mm. and my family of three have one apple, I think the caller is talking from a restorative justice perspective is, and you still have two apples as one individual and my family of three has one apple, you need to forfeit one apple. We need to benefit by an extra apple to achieve a balance, however the balance may be achieved. If that logic be employed in this context, in the context of there needs to be a redress, there needs to be certain things that are allowed in the context of, again, I go back to social engineering. But it's not social engineering because it says white companies will be targeted or white people will be targeted. It simply says this. Companies above 50 employers, I mean employees, they will be required, among other things, to report to the minister on their plans in terms of how they will meet the targets. If they want to do business with the state, they need to ensure that they are at least compliant with the law that pertains so that the regions from which they are operating as well as the sectors of the economy that government has targeted, are more representative of what a balanced economy and transformed economy looks like. Final comment in relation to that. Um, yes, that then continues to say that they will have to take into account the minister's arbitrary numerical targets that he can also set. And I think that is where the rub lies and where our problem lies, um, is we're giving one man this power to basically dictate every boardroom in the country this is not conducive. Regarding the Apple example, um, this is not, however, true of an economy. It's not a zero-sum game. The economy can grow. Uh, we do not need to redistribute the two apples between every slice and thinner, because that's what this is about. The government is fighting about slicing the pie in the right direction. When we are fully capable of growing the pie, we can have a much bigger pie. Everyone can have much, as much pie as they want if we do the, implement the correct policies, get education online, get the economy growing. From our perspective, I think uh, we'll be vehemently against social engineering of, of any kind, trying to manufacture a society rather than uh, getting this done through consensus, getting everyone on board and ensuring that we're moving together forward at the, at, at the same time as, as one country, at least, in the economic sense. And that is what we're aiming for. That is how we think ultimately we will redress the past that was created by social engineering. Um, I don't think this is a situation where we need the hair of the dog. We don't need to once again repeat several of these mistakes by creating absolute barriers to the labor market, which is ultimately what the minister's numerical targets will enable. And that is why we think this law won't pass constitutional muster. It's a schizophrenic law that on the one hand strictly forbids quotas, and on the other hand enables the minister to implement quotas. And um, we're, we're exercising our rights to go to court uh, to ensure that we don't go down the route of social engineering the future for Very our children. Well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Mulder. In a minute and a half that remains of the show, Mr. Mohale, you represent Busa. You've got the backing of the biggest trade union in the country that sits at Nedlek. So there's a business imperative that is considered there. There's a public sector imperative that is considered there as well. And you wear the cap of business, also having been an employer yourself. How do you round and sum up this conversation and what should be the key takeouts? Imagine if any government in the world said to business, you know what? You must pay us taxes as you feel it is fair. Nobody will pay any taxes. Every government everywhere else in the world, in South Africa, the corporate tax rate is 28%. Individual tax rate, upper bracket, up to 45%. That's the law. Our job is to comply. Here we are rectifying 
what 198 United Nations countries termed a crime against humanity. And let's call it by name, apartheid. And when the government started in this country for 29 years, we're still talking about targets, not quotas. There is a difference. If Solidarity and Afriforum and other people that are privileged understand our constitution, they will understand this notion of one common good and greater purpose. We cannot fix the problems of economic justice in this country without first addressing racial justice. The deck has always been stacked against poor people. Poverty still has primarily a black and feminine face. Economic justice and racial fairness have always been one and the same thing. Asking for a hand up is not the same as asking for a hand out. Employment equity amendment is not a permanent crutch yeah. against which black people want to lean for the rest of their lives. Dr. Mohale, Dr. Parks, Dr. Mulder, it is 22 hours. Thank you so much for your thoughts. I suppose there's only one thing that stands to be seen, how that litigation, if solidarity should go that route, will pan out. Certainly this conversation will inform much of my commentary and especially that litigation, however it may turn out. Gentlemen, for your time and so much more, thank you indeed.